Tonight on Talking Politics, Senator Elizabeth Warren says she has a blueprint for Democrats to avoid a midterm election disaster. But does she have the influence to inspire action? We will dig into that ahead. But first, a look at another big election on the horizon, this one statewide, the race to replace Charlie Baker. Attorney General Maura Healey has been the front runner since long before she even entered the race. And now just over a month away from the state party conventions, the latest poll shows she's only built on that lead. She's now up 45 points, according to a new survey of likely Democratic primary voters from the Center for Public Opinion at UMass Lowell, with more undecided voters than ones who are currently planning to support State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, which prompted Boston Globe columnist Adrian Walker to ask, is time running out for the Chang-Diaz campaign? He joins me now, along with Jen Smith, who reports for the Dorchester Reporter and co-hosts the Horse Race Politics podcast. Thank you both for being here. Adrian, since you wrote the column, let me start with you. I imagined a Chang-Diaz partisan reading your piece and saying, hey, wait a minute, there's not going to be a vote in the Democratic primary for another five months. We haven't even gotten to the convention. This thing's just getting started. What would your response be to that hypothetical rejoinder? This, this thing is not just getting started. I mean, once you get to the caucuses, it's really no longer early in a campaign. You know, people are already making choices. Campaigns are building momentum. They're planning their strategy. Importantly, they're raising money. Sometimes campaigns think there's like this bell that goes off around Labor Day when voters suddenly start to focus and pay attention. But those campaigns have one thing in common, which is that they always lose. What's happening right now is super important, and there's never a good time to be 45 points behind. Jen Smith, is your assessment of the state of the Chang-Diaz campaign as dire as Adrian's is? I think that it might be as dire, but maybe for a few different reasons. People aren't just saying that they have a strong opinion in favor of Maura Healey for policy perspectives that are borne out by actual policy proposals. As we've talked about before, I'm sure here, there is kind of been a wide gap between the two candidates in terms of the types of platforms they're rolling out. Nonetheless, the UMass Lowell poll found that voters still consider uh, Maura Healey to be the stronger candidate on issues like the economy. Uh, they consider her to be just a stronger leader in general, even though, for instance, there haven't been any strict policy proposals coming out of Maura Healey's office until just recently on climate. So if Sonia Chang-Diaz is trying to make inroads into what the appeal of Maura Healey is, that might be tricky if it's mostly an impressions-based uh, preference. That's a great point. And Adrian, I should mention, you brought that up in, in your column as well the dearth of specific policy proposals coming from the Healy campaign compared to Chang Diaz. And yet, as you say, Jen, it just seems like voters currently assume she'll do a better job, whatever the issue is, because she's more a Healy, and that's tough to run against. You mentioned her climate plan that she just rolled out this week. Chang Diaz rolled out her Green New Deal for Massachusetts back in December, I believe, but it doesn't seem to have redounded to her benefit the way a similar proposal did for Michelle Wu in last year's mayoral campaign. Why do you think that might be? I don't know if this is going to be a little bit of a pushbacky answer here, but push you by, might by argue all means. That. I'm wrong all the time, so <laughs> go for it. So I wouldn't say, for instance, that uh, the Michelle Wu Green New Deal specifically actually benefited her in that when there was actually polling done on both the mayoral race and polling done right now, looking at the gubernatorial race, 
climate is not really a strong issue for most voters. They care about it a lot. This is Massachusetts. We've got you know a, a very high opinion of ourselves when it comes to climate and energy <laughs> policy. But when it comes to the top issues, voters are saying it's housing, it's the economy, it's jobs, it's schools. Good point. So though Michelle Wu built a brand for herself that could be very easily connected with climate, people associated that more with transit policy. And here you're in this situation where voters are probably looking at two gubernatorial candidates that they consider, and of course different uh, campaigns might dispute this, both considered pretty progressive. And the polling shows that environment is not really that high on anyone's priority list. And voters might look at it and shrug and say, we weren't really worried either of them was going to tank the climate here. I genuinely do appreciate that correction. I tend to think all the time when I flash back to the mayoral race of all the young progressives who had backed Ed Markey and then backed Michelle Wu, seemingly maybe in part because they were animated by her focus on climate, but they do not represent the entire electorate, which is a good reminder to get. Adrian, toward the end of your piece, you said that Sonia Chang-Diaz needs a new line of attack quickly if she's gonna turn this thing into a competitive race. I wanna play a little bit of an old line of attack of hers. When I interviewed her a few weeks ago in this space, she talked about the legislator creating a new oversight body for the Department of Corrections last year, charged with, among other things, decrowding the Department of Corrections during the pandemic, and then what Maura Healy did in response to that legislative action. Let's take a look. The Attorney General uh, made a recommendation to the DOC about who that person should be. They promptly ignored it. Uh, and picked, handpicked their own person to be, you know, their overseer. And the attorney general, you know, refused to assert uh, her authority and her responsibility to make that independent appointment. And, you know, she talks a lot of, the attorney general talks a lot about being a point guard, right? Um, she had the ball, she had the shot, and she didn't take it. So if turning Maura Healy's basketball background against her isn't the right line of attack for Sonia Chang-Diaz, do you have any ideas about lines of criticism that could be more effective? I mean, I, I just think that she's got to find a way to begin to appeal to a broader electorate, right? Her campaign so far has been basically, I'm to the left of Mara Healy. I'm the real progressive. I'm more progressive. And you see, what, that's gotten her all the 17% of the polls, in the polls, right? So she's going to have to find a way to speak to the other 80% of the Democratic Party. I want to ask each of you about a different candidate in the race, Republican Chris Doty, who has changed the way he describes himself and then evolved once again recently. First off, he told the Boston Globe, right when he kicked off his campaign, quote, when I saw uh, that Governor Baker wasn't getting back in and I didn't see any other moderate Republicans, my wife said, hey, quit complaining about it, take a courage pill and step out on the stage. So that's what he told the Globe when he entered the race. Now uh, you're going to see a couple excerpts of him talking about his political identity with me, and then again last week with Jim Browdy. I don't remember saying you, that I was a moderate. I have my own views and my own perspectives in life. So I would say that I'm a Chris Doty Republican. I think I'm a moderate man. Instant correction. That was actually this week with, uh, with Chris Doty. But he says he's moderate. Then he says he's not a moderate. Then he says he is a moderate man. Jen, what do you make of this apparent 360 on Chris Doty's part? 
I think the wobble really speaks to how difficult it is if you're trying to figure out what your place is in a Massachusetts Republican Party, where the only person who has apparently been able to find real success at the state level is Charlie Baker, but we haven't really seen any indication that he's got substantial coattails to cling to. Uh, most of his voters seem to be actually gravitating toward Maura Healy, of all people, in, in this campaign. So when Doty is messing around with the idea of am I a moderate? Am I more, you know, an independent? Am I a Chris Doty Republican? He's actually mirroring some of the same language that Charlie Baker has used in the past of being a Charlie Baker Republican, uh, trying to hopefully, I think, carve out a space that won't alienate a more right-leaning leg, uh, leg of the mass GOP, but at the same time, could make some inroads into Maura Healy's uh, lock-on moderates. It's, as you say, a very tricky balancing act to pull off. Adrian, what do you make of Doty defining himself one way, then shifting, and then shifting again? Well, I, I agree with Chen that he's trying to find out, you know, find a path, right, in the current Massachusetts Republican Party. The problem for him is that the party, the, the Republican Party, has really gone to the right, and the moderates are not going to be there for him. So I don't think he can win as a, running as a Chris Doty moderate Republican. Because moderation is not what they're looking for right now. And it seems that some weeks he thinks it's a good idea to be a moderate, and other weeks he realizes that's not a good strategy. All right. Adrian Walker, Jen Smith, thank you both for talking all this through. My pleasure. In midterm congressional elections, it is the norm for the president's party to lose seats in Congress. But this year, Democrats are facing a particularly dire set of circumstances, with consistently low approval ratings coming out of the White House and inflation sending the cost of living sky high. That is why the senior senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, issued a call to action to her party in a New York Times op-ed this week, telling Democrats, quote, to put it bluntly, if we fail to use the months remaining before the elections to deliver on more of our agenda, Democrats are headed toward big losses in the midterms. But does Senator Warren have enough clout to make her fellow Democrats listen? And even if they do, is her prescription the right one? I am joined now by Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect, a professor at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management, and the author of many books, including Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and the Struggle to Save Democracy, which comes out next week. Bob Kuttner, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So we have a lot to get to. I'm going to try to be methodical. The gist of Elizabeth Warren's argument in her op-ed seems to be that what the Democrats have to do between now and the midterms is focus relentlessly on the economic concerns of Americans of modest means, whether they are working class Americans, middle class Americans, maybe even upper middle class Americans. Do you think she has the right idea? Yeah, if she not only has the right idea, it's the only way that the Democrats can avoid a wipeout in November. And uh, some of this is a matter of planting a flag and indicating what the Democrats are for that the Republicans refuse to enact. I mean, don't forget, the, the problem is not Joe Manchin. The problem is 50 Republicans. If, 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 if more of the Republicans supported the child tax credit, uh, Manchin wouldn't matter. So you have to hang that around the neck of the Republicans. So some of it is the program that the Democrats want to deliver that is popular, that is good for working people, that the Republicans block. Some of it is Biden being more aggressive about things that he can do via executive order, like student debt cancellation, and we can talk about that in more detail. He also has the, the executive power 
to have the Labor Department be much more aggressive in combating wage theft uh, and making it possible for workers to join unions if they want. He also has the power under the Bayh-Dole Act of uh, 1980 to put drugs into the public domain if drug makers are price gouging. He also has the power, and he's tried to exercise some of this, to push the FTC and the Justice Department to, to go after the kind of opportunistic price hikes that are part of the inflation. So I think, you know, Harry Truman in 1948 is a kind of a good role model. You, you plant a flag, you say, this is what we could be doing for regular working people if Republicans were not blocking us at every step of the way. And you get out on the stump and you make that case. And I think this is the only way that Democrats can uh, remind voters what the Democratic Party has stood for until Wall Street captured it and what Biden would like to do to bring back that Democratic Party. Let's talk first about the executive actions that you just described that President Biden, you say, could take, some of which Warren mentioned in her piece, and then get to the, the legislative possibilities or lack thereof in a moment. What do you make of Biden's reluctance at this point in his presidency, nearly halfway through, to do the things that you and others, including Senator Warren, including Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, have argued he has the power to do right now. Why is he reluctant to flex his muscle that way? You know, I think he's getting advice from multiple quarters. Uh, it's hard to pick up an editorial uh, of a major newspaper without seeing the advice that Biden needs to move to the center. Uh, I've argued that he needs to be rather moderate on some of the social issues that are lightning rods, but needs to be more aggressive on the economic issues. And But he's being pulled in a bunch of directions by his advisors, by Democrats in Congress. And so the problem is if, if you temporize and split the difference into a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you don't send a strong message. And, and I think exhibit A is student debt cancellation. He, he can't quite bring himself to cancel student debt. So, we, so he gives debt relief in dribs and drabs. He you know, suspends it, uh, calls it a pause for three or four months. And then he recently made some technical changes in the, in the program for people who have had public service employment who were supposed to get debt cancellation. That will help a few tens of thousands of people. But boy, if he said, okay, there are two generations of Americans whose economic lives are being hobbled before they even begin by student debt, average student debt, $37,000 per student. These are kids, many of them, most of them probably first time college attendees. They're the kids whose parents couldn't afford to pay tuition. So by definition, they're not rich kids. And by the way, it is young people who vote for Democrats when they turn out, who don't turn out reliably enough. There's nothing Biden could do that could signal compassion, empathy, for the plight of young adults more than student debt relief. But you have some economists making arguments that, well, gee, the average college graduate uh, is better off than the average high school graduate, so would this really be distributively smart? Yeah. Well, in fact, unpack different kinds of college graduates. It's the kids who have to take out loans who are from the working class, lower middle class families. So he could do a few big things that would get headlines. He could then go on the road to make the case for why he stands for helping regular people and Republicans block other things that he wants to do. I think that's the only way he can recoup. So uh, God bless Elizabeth Warren. I think she's right. And Biden probably listens to her a lot more than he listens to me because they have a 
relationship that goes back a ways. And well, let's, we can all talk I, about I, that. I'm glad you mentioned that. You knew exactly where I wanted to go next. To me, uh, as someone who doesn't watch Washington as closely as you do, the very fact that Warren has to write this piece in the Times, and I think she made an appearance on the Pod Save America podcast, mm -hmm. beloved by uh, Democrats, some Democrats everywhere. Uh, the fact that she has to go through those channels suggests to me, maybe wrongly, that she's not being listened to in backdoor consultations as much as she might want to be. How, and, and I may be incorrect about that, bracketing my, my possible reading for a moment, how would you describe the relationship between Warren and Biden and I guess the extent to which she has been able to influence economic policy up until now, halfway through yeah. his first term, if he has a second term in office. Well, it's a very warm, close relationship. And I have no doubt, whatever, even though I don't know this for a fact, that she has sent that memo to Joe Biden privately. And now she just wants to share it with 10 million uh, people listening in by putting in the Times to make it clear that she means business. That's very much Warren style. She plays a very uh, astute inside game. She also plays a very astute outside game. But uh, let's let's look at the history here. So Warren, you know, earns her stripes as the head of the congressional oversight panel for the bank bailout. Right. And she was the loyal opposition when when the people who um, Obama appointed to carry this out, Summers and Geithner, and and then Bernanke reappointed. Um, are more concerned about propping up the banks than they are about cleaning up the bank, cleaning out the banks. Uh, she's the loyal opposition. And uh, then she gets elected to the Senate. And um, one of her allies was Ted Kaufman, who served out the remainder of Biden's term after Biden becomes a vice president. Ted Kaufman was Biden's longtime chief of staff. And Biden turned out to be one of the Senate radicals who really wanted to constrain the abuses on Wall Street. So she becomes very close to Ted Kaufman. And then in 2016, when Biden is weighing a run for president, you know, there's this famous meeting that, that Biden has with Warren suggesting that they run as a ticket. And Biden is talked out of that mainly by Obama, who has made a commitment to Hillary Clinton. And then in 2016, Warren uses her influence to withhold her endorsement of Hillary until she gets some kind of commitment that Hillary will not be yet another neoliberal administration uh, populating all the top economic jobs with Wall Streeters. So finally, uh, and this brings us up to the present, when Warren's own campaign for, for the Democratic nomination falters, and basically, if, if both of them had not been in the race, either Warren or Sanders would have been the nominee, but they crowd each other out. They split the progressive vote. After South Carolina, Biden becomes the inevitable nominee. And Elizabeth Warren, again, being very astute at how the game is played, very quickly endorses him. And in exchange, has a lot of influence with the positions Biden takes and with the people he appoints, and lots and lots of people from Warren world have key positions uh, in the Biden administration. So she has a lot of influence, and she has been part of the movement that has pushed the Biden administration in a more New Dealish direction. I talk about this in my new book than than the previous three Democratic presidents. So which I think is 
Oh, I apologize. So when we look, for example, at the stimulus, uh, which I was hoping to get to a little bit later, but it's important enough that we should probably get to it now. When you look at that, is it fair to say that Warren played a big role in helping determine the specifics and also the scope of the stimulus that Biden embraced? Well, I don't know chapter and verse of what parts of the stimulus particularly came from Biden, uh, Warren, but certainly she was a player in the formulation of, of those and a lot of other policies. And again, one of her favorite phrases is personnel as policy. And so you look at all of the Warren people who are playing top roles in the Biden administration, that's another way by which she exerts influence. Okay. Uh, briefly, let's talk about legislative possibilities for the Democrats, which are constrained, as you've said, not only by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, but by a, a monolithic block of opposition from the Republicans in the Senate. One of the uh, calls she made in that Times op-ed was advancing her anti-corruption bill, which she pointed out has bipartisan support. In the process of suggesting that Democrats move on that, she took a swipe at Nancy Pelosi, not by name, but noting that a lot of Americans don't like the idea of people, including the Democratic Speaker of the House, as Warren put it, trading uh, on stocks that they are also in some way, directly or indirectly, tasked with regulating stocks, companies, that that just doesn't sit well with most voters. From a diplomatic point of view, is taking a jab like that at Nancy Pelosi going to help Warren accomplish what she's hoping to with this op-ed, or will it hurt her chances? I have no idea what's behind that. Um, I do think on the merits, Warren's uh, anti-corruption bill, Warren's anti-monopoly bill, Warren's uh, support for uh, a billionaire's tax, Warren's support, and this is Sanders, is the, is the prime sponsor for a tax on excess profits. It positions the Democratic Party as the party of the common American, as it used to be, and it reminds voters that Republicans, even though Trump plays the role of a populist, are really in bed with all the corporate guys. And, and by the way, the failure of the Democrats to do that under Clinton and under Obama paved the road for Donald Trump because Trump was able to make off with that populist anger that the Democrats became the targets of because they were not the champions of it. And Biden begun, began to get that back then uh, luck deserted him, right? We had the COVID upsurges. We had inflation. We had Manchin, who ha was very loyal in the spring of uh, 2021, supported the Recovery Act, deciding that he was going to block a lot of stuff. And then you had the supply chain crisis. So, and, and then you had the Ukraine war. So everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And for Biden to possibly recoup, he's really got to remind voters which side he's on and which side Democrats who are running in the 2022 midterm are on. You I mentioned inflation as a piece of President Biden's bad luck. As you know, one of the bits of pushback that Warren's proposals have elicited in the conservative political media sphere uh, is a rejoinder which basically says the reason that we have this problem with runaway inflation right now is that the stimulus was too big. So it's great that she wants to be attuned, wants Democrats to be attuned to the economic travails of ordinary people, but they helped create those by pushing too hard. Now I know we're getting into the territory that your book will get into. What is your response to the conservative contention that the stimulus was just too big and helped land us where we are right now? 
Well, according to the Council of Economic Advisors, maybe one or two points of the increased inflation are the result of uh, the stimulus. Most of it is the result of the supply chain crisis where you have shortages of stuff that are the result of uh, this, this bad policy of relying on just-in-time production, far-flung global supply chains, finally bumping into a crisis and you can't get the stuff you need and supply and demand takes over, the price goes up. And then you also have a lot of corporations taking advantage of a climate of rising inflation to, to price gouge. So, I mean, airline fares are up 40% this year, uh, about 10% uh, of the price hike in airline fares is the result of higher aviation fuel. Uh, the rest of it is just pure opportunism. And you have some of this in the price of oil. And then of course, on top of that, you have the Russia-Ukraine war, which is also added to the inflation. So it's a, it's a piece of it. It's not the, you know, it being the, the recovery act is a piece of what drove inflation. It's not the most important piece. There are two questions I want to throw at you in the two and a half minutes we have left. The first is, in her op-ed, uh, Elizabeth Warren talked about Republicans going for culture war issues, and she sort of shrugged that off, saying essentially, Democrats are on the right side here. This is what we do. We're going to keep on doing it, but let's focus on economic stuff from here on out. You mentioned a moment ago you think Democrats would benefit from being a little more moderate when it comes to social issues. What do you mean? Well, so Biden said, we're not in favor of defunding the police. We need to fund the police. And some people on the left said, oh, my God, that's pandering. Well, you know, if this were a seminar room, you could have Biden saying, well, actually, we need to divert resources that go to the police so that it goes to first responders, so that when you get a 911 call over domestic uh, conflict, you don't get a cop. Uh, arresting everybody, you get someone trained in mental health. A lot of localities are doing that. that that's, that's too wonky for presidential politics. So when, when people are worried about crime, which admittedly is going up, I applaud Biden tactically for saying, no, defund the police, that's a, that's a caricature of what Democrats are for. You have some radical groups who wanna defund the police, but that's not the Democratic Party. And so it also seems to me that if you want to um, buy the running room to be aggressive in your anti-racism, you have to pay for that by delivering concrete pocketbook benefits to white working class people who feel displaced and are not sure who they're supposed to be angry at. Okay. So I would say put that stuff away as best you can. Focus on the pocketbook stuff. Last question for you. Looming over all of this for me, you'll have about 30 seconds to answer. Do you think the chances are reasonably good that we might see another Warren presidential bid in 2024? Well, she's going to be 75 years old in 2024. She's very spry. She's the spryest 75, 71-year-old uh, I know. Um, Bernie, who's 15 months older than the president, is talking about possibly running. Trump, who's older than Warren, is talking about possibly running. I'm not in favor of a geriocracy, if that's a word. <laughs> but I would never rule anything out with Elizabeth Warren. Okay. Bob Kuttner, thank you. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, likewise. Thanks so much. That is it for tonight. But do come back next week and, as always, tell us what you think. 
The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching and good night.